Hello and welcome to episode one of Miradas, a new podcast on current affairs and culture in Latin America with your co-hosts, me, Lawrence Blair. And me, John Bartlett. Our hope with the show is to bring together a range of new and established viewpoints, both from the outside and within Latin America, to highlight new trends, fresh thinking and global connections across three interviews each week. Okay, and in our first interview, the newsflash, John spoke with political scientist Mariken Jimenez on the crisis in Venezuela, uh, whether a transition will be occurring there in the coming months and years perhaps, uh, and what that might look like. Then I spoke with Chilean journalist Danielle Matamala for our deep dive section, which is our kind of big interview of the week, on the concentration of power and wealth uh, among the country's tiny elite, the subject of his latest book. Mm -hmm. And finally, I caught up with the Honduran photojournalist uh, Thomas Ayuso, uh, for our culture section, um, and we talked about his work covering uh, migration from Honduras to the US um, and the sort of ethical implications involved in that work. Uh, we'll be back at the end of the episode to share some reflections and to uh, round the show off. Absolutely. So, see you on the other side. See you there. I'm here this morning with Marianne Jimenez-Morales, a lecturer in politics at Lincoln College at the University of Oxford, uh, who has written uh, analysis recently on the Venezuela crisis for El País, a Spanish newspaper, Al Jazeera, and a number of others. Uh, Marianne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So at time of recording here in, in late June, we've got um, the Venezuelan humanitarian crisis worsening amid a stalemate over the future of the country and a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, from the 695,000 refugees that were thought to have fled Venezuela by the end of 2015 to reported 4 million by mid-2019. So uh, some estimates even put the figure closer to 5 million uh, that have now left the country. And this seems to be on the rise as well. We have a million people uh, have escaped Venezuela in seven months uh, since uh, November 2018, according to latest figures from the UN Refugee Agency. I was wondering if you could give us a quick overview of how the situation uh, stands at the moment. Yeah, the situation in Venezuela is very dramatic, but so is the situation of many Venezuelans that have left the country, as you said. So there is one humanitarian crisis going on within the national borders. Uh, 60% of hospitals don't have running water. Uh, there are power cuts uh, every day. We have hyperinflation around 10 million percent. Uh, there's uh, massive shortages in food, but also in medicine. So the daily life of Venezuelans uh, today uh, looks like this. Uh, waking up in the morning, trying to uh, scratch something uh, to eat for your kids. And then uh, kids are not even going to school anymore because the teachers have left or because they're too tired to go. And then they have to figure out for the rest of the day where to queue uh, to get a little bit... Um, of food for uh, the evening. And then there's the situation of Venezuelans abroad. Many, as we know, are walking uh, from Venezuela down uh, south the continent and, uh, well, many tragic things are happening to them um, along their way. So, yeah, there's a very complicated, complex humanitarian crisis going on that needs to be addressed um, soon or now. Yeah, of course, it's, uh, it's looking bleak at the moment. Um, I was wondering, so how, how likely do you see, do you see a transition uh, of power coming in the next year? Um, and is there a risk that Maduro and the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the PSUV, 
uh, hang on in the style of the of the Castros, for example, in Cuba? Yeah, this is a very good question. I was a little bit more optimistic earlier uh, this year. Um, if we recall, last year um, there was the snap election in May 2018 where the opposition decided to boycott because it was an unfair and unfree electoral process. Uh, and then we didn't see much for six months happening until January this year where the opposition assumed uh, an interim presidency under Juan Guaidó. Um, and then it seemed like the the people were mobilized again. They were willing to hit the streets to demand regime change. Uh, and they have been willing to do so. However, we have seen uh, a little bit of a decline um, over um, the last months. And that's a, a true consequence of the repression of the regime. Right, Every time that people go on the streets, there are deaths. Um, more than 30 uh, MPs from the National Assembly have been either uh, well disappeared over the last months or they have been forced to go into exile or have been jailed. So clearly for the political leadership, it has been very hard as well, even though it seemed like they have a strategy to um, pursue or fulfill uh, this political change that more than 80% of people want in Venezuela. Um, and then, obviously, if we don't see a change, um, people are, are getting desperate uh, within the country, but also outside of the country, because we, we have seen that the massive migration flows are also putting a lot of pressure on neighboring countries, but the, the region overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the question we're asking about the Castros is a very interesting one. What we have seen in other cases, for example, in Syria, which is another very extreme case, or in Sudan, is that uh, when authoritarian incumbents hold on to power um, for a sufficient long time, people will be demoralized, demobilized again, uh, and the political leadership uh, fragments and um, gets more desperate too, right? So I think what is crucial to uh, maybe address or answer this question is to think about the role that China, Russia, and Cuba um, would play in this. So they have a lot of experience, clearly, in sustaining even unpopular authoritarian incumbents. And what we know from the literature as well in Eastern European or also some African countries is that even if authoritarian incumbents are unpopular, they can't stay um, in power because there's no real alternative. And I think that is what um, Maduro is trying to do. He's trying to um, deflate the movement. So he's trying, He's he doesn't have to put one way though in jail uh, because it's much more efficient to him that people see that he's never going to be um, a real president right? with, with um, state capacity um, and uh, control over the bu- bureaucracy. It's very hard with Venezuela to um, make any predictions, but I think they would still have a few years if they're successful in, yeah, in deflating the movement. Sure. And you mentioned Juan Guaido there, the, um, the sort of de facto uh, president or leader uh, in Venezuela who's recognised by more than 50 countries. And there was this kind of uh, military uprising which happened towards the end of April, uh, which was, there's a lot of kind of uncertainty around what actually happened, um, as we know. But how much of a setback do you, do you think that was, that this kind of didn't come to anything and he was kind of forced to take refuge in the embassy? It is a clear setback. Um, for 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 democratization in Venezuela. After that, what we've seen is that Maduro has repressed even harder 
uh, as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, um, more MPs are, are getting jailed or forced into exile. Um, so it's definitely uh, positive in, in a personal sense that uh, Leopoldo Lopez is, uh, is free. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he's not really free, right? He's in the Spanish embassy. Um, but it meant a setback for, uh, for the opposition. And it seemed that um, the opposition fragmented along these lines. And now they have to refigure uh, their strategy and maybe think about how, uh, yeah, how to find a new way over the next few months to convince the people that this is possible and that they have a new uh, plan that is now, you know, addressing the situation where Maduro has regained um, his hold onto power. Sure. And so, what what form could the tradi- uh, could the transition now take? Um, have we had any options kind of taken off the table in the last few months? And the other the other interesting aspect of this is foreign military intervention, particularly from the US. Right. So clearly for, for the country and also for its populations in the long run, a negotiated or pacted transition would be um, the ideal, right? It's, uh, we know from other cases as well already that when there is some sort of a broad uh, coalition government that is capable of accepting trade-offs, uh, and accepting the, the the necessary timing for reforms, um, societies can actually recover um, more quickly or in a more sustainable way. So, but the thing is that this has been tried in Venezuela, and which is why part of the opposition is not willing to sit down with Maduro anymore, because we have seen in 2014, but also in 2017, and now with the dialogues in Norway, that the always when it's about free and fair elections, the regime is yeah probably scared of accepting these conditions. Now, um, it also uh, is important to highlight that the longer it takes for a pacted or a more peaceful transition, whereby you know the regime would accept that in a few you know months um, it would have uh, new elections. Uh, it means that the radical voices within Venezuela and also the, the desperation of people is leading them to ask for, you know, a more um, interventionist maybe uh, end to this, which is what you mentioned about the military intervention. But mm-hmm. I think it's not feasible um, because such an operation um, would be very costly for the U.S. The U.S. doesn't, so Trump's administration doesn't have the backup of Congress for this uh strategy and i also think that if it was if they had the support to do it they would have already done it this is nothing that you drag on for too long i believe um and it's also very costly if they don't have to support and if it goes wrong this means that uh trump could lose the election right so what i'm trying to say with this is that this is a geopolitical issue as well where all the other countries that could have maybe an interest in putting an end to venezuela's um crisis by triggering a raging change would um would have to intervene and, and i don't think that 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 is feasible at the moment um and it's uh needless to say not it would not be healthy for the country because an intervention would uh, create more war. It would fragment the paramilitary groups that we know uh, live 
in the country like the ELN or so some um, forces of demobilized FARC, also the colectivos, which are parliamentary groups um, of the regime, all of them have interests, right, uh, in in the, in sustaining the status quo. So if you pursue an interventionist um, strategy to seek change, that would trigger responses from all these other armed groups within the country, and this could end up in a yeah, in a bloodshed and in a long enduring civil conflict. And assuming a transition can occur, how can how can Venezuela be rebuilt? What what can we do to create a lasting political arrangement that kind of coalesces the uh, well, the frankly divided opposition forces in Venezuela at the moment? Yeah, well, this is probably as difficult or as tough as bringing about regime transition in the first place. I think that many. Uh, reforms will be in place to the political system, but also to the social um, uh, welfare uh, system and the police and security um, departments. So we'll have to see a rearrangement, basically, of the whole state because it has uh, collapsed completely. Um, I think that we will see the emergence of probably new parties in the long run that are capable of understanding the situation that the population has gone through. So I think that new cleavages will have to emerge and parties that are willing to deal with the past, right? Um, I don't think that it, it will be healthy for, in the long run, for the Venezuelan society if you had still parties that pretend the Chavismo never existed. I think that this is part now of the national identity, is part of the country and will will need uh, leaders and uh, and parties that are capable of bringing the society together. So I think that transitional justice mechanisms, for example, like truth commissions um, or other extrajudicial uh, mechanisms that can help you deal with the dictatorial past, but also understanding that the origins of Chavismo were legitimate in the sense that many people felt uh, that they weren't part of the political system, that they didn't have access uh, you know, to the state as others. So big topics will be the participation of everyone or as much as possible, right? The representation so that everyone is part of the system. And I think that it will be important for, for Chavismo to reorganize maybe around a political party is that if that is what they wanted and, and to try and shape uh, the political landscape as well. And the other thing... Um, that I, I think seems interesting is uh, the proposed plan país. Um, so the opposition is presenting this new uh, program about how a new Venezuela could look like. Um, m- many aspects of it right now are looking at the crisis in particular in the moment, but I think that elites, academics, civil society should be already thinking about what kind of country Uh, Venezuela should be in the long run and I think there isn't much yet but this means that you know people that have left people that have seen other things um, other types of organizing society could chip in and they should be part of it but that means obviously that political elites are willing to open the space for new ideas and for Venezuelans to actually shape their country. Yeah, and I think one of the another of the big challenges that you've you've mentioned so far is there are so many Venezuelans abroad at the moment. So if you're going to rebuild a state, you're going to have kind of, well, I don't know if everyone's going to return immediately or even at all, but you're going to have a lot of people returning to uh, to the country. 
it's a kind of an it's an unprecedented kind of mass repatriation of, uh, of of people. How could it possibly be managed logistically, firstly, but also in terms of kind of reincorporating these people into this new Venezuelan state? Yeah, this is going to be a huge challenge. We saw a few days ago Juan Guaido launching a new um, uh, program called uh, Volver a Casa, which is actually looking at those that have left. Obviously, we're talking about millions of people and we're talking about a collapsed state back in Venezuela, right? So the home country is collapsed. So how is it going to be capable of bringing back the people that left because of that? Uh, same collapse. So I think that the support of the international community, uh, but also of Venezuelan capital, will be important here. Um, it's not that easy to bring back people if hospitals are collapsed, if uh, the education system is collapsed, etc. So um, I think that you would need some sort of a special uh, law as well for um, the returning uh, population and you would need a special budget for them as well so um, yeah you, you at the same time you have to be addressing the crisis actually abroad so beyond the national borders and within um, I haven't thought about what political uh, or uh, specific public policies need to be in place but I do know that we could look maybe at the Colombian case where um, the Colombian experience tells us that it is possible to bring back people um, obviously, the programs that I have been working out in Colombia is for high-skilled, and the case of Venezuela shows that actually many uh, underprivileged people have left as well. So we would have to see a new Venezuela where you have a special budget for people that have left the country, and that budget needs to be divided into how to bring back high-skilled people and how to incorporate or address the situation of uh, underprivileged or, or poor Venezuelans that today is actually 9 out of 10 um, it's not going to be an easy process and even though many people probably miss their country they also know the situation that the country is in and actually from my field work in, in Colombia at the coast earlier this year in March what I heard from many is that you know after they have been through the whole process of leaving leaving their families behind and maybe starting from scratch, even though if it is maybe only uh, selling uh, fruits or selling sweets on the streets, they're trying to build up something from scratch and, and maybe they won't be returning. But the situation then means what is going to be the situ um, yeah their legal situation in that new country, right? So in this case, Colombia, what is it going to do with all the Venezuelans that don't want to return but maybe don't have um, the legal uh, access to uh, yeah, to staying in that country? So there's a lot of uh, gray zones, I think, yet. And, and maybe the political leadership hasn't had the vision or the time to look at this. But this is going to be a, a massive challenge uh, for the future. Absolutely. It's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds. Marian, thank you so much. Thank you so much. My guest today is distinguished Chilean journalist Daniel Matamala, who has enjoyed a long and fruitful career in the media. He's currently a television anchor on CNN Chile and has written six books, all of which go some way towards explaining the complex society that is modern-day Chile. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much for having me in your show. The first question I'd like to ask you is, is along the lines of your latest book, uh, which is called Los Reyes Desnudos, or The Naked Kings. 
which looks broadly at the theme of kind of money and power and the concentration of the two uh, in the elite in Chile. Um, what is the kind of thesis of Los Reyes Desnudos and what did you learn while writing it? Well, uh, Los Reyes Desnudos, The Naked Kings, uh, is a play with the name of the Hans Christian Andersen tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, mm-hmm. in which, you know, suddenly people realize that the emperor is naked in front of all the people, mm-hmm. and so they feel they can shout, the emperor is naked. Uh, and I think that something similar uh, is happening to kings, I mean, to power in Chile, with a series of, a series of high-profile scandals. Uh, big executives paying politicians for favorable legislation in Congress, uh, mm-hmm. big companies forming uh, trusts in areas like pharmacy, paper, chickens, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians receiving dirty money, bishops that were covering sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, uh, mm-hmm. generals in the army using public money for personal uh, uses. And it's like all areas of power in Chile were shaking in last five years with this scream, the king is naked. And mm-hmm. that is happening in a country that historically prides itself to be less corrupt than the rest of Latin America. Yeah, sure. And I think there have been some rankings out recently that have said, or have confirmed Chile once again to be, um, you know, the, the least corrupt country, I think, in at least South America, I think Latin America as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting time to be talking about this. Um, I was wondering, kind of historically, as we as we talk about kind of Chile, um, how has it come to be ruled by such a small elite? I mean, it's incredible the the the, the number of surnames that that kind of govern kind of certain kind of aspects of society. There really aren't very many of them. So I was wondering, kind of, how this happened historically. Well, it goes really, really, really further back. Um, Chile has been always ruled by very small elites the ones that dominated the land at first with the big haciendas, mm-hmm. and after that, the wealth of nitrates that were the source of wealth in the old Chile, Salitre. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some figures of uh, 1882, so in the, in, the, in, the last, in the last time of the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, when 59 persons dominated half of Chilean G- GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, the fortune of the Edwards, that were the wealthiest family in these days, was about 7% of total Chilean GDP. It's almost the same percentage that is today dominated by the wealthiest family that is now the Luxish, mm-hmm. the Luxit. I mean. And uh, the same people and the same families were also dominating politics. Uh, the Edwards were businessmen, and at the same time, they were the owners of the uh, most relevant newspaper in Chile, El Mercurio, and at the same time, there were minister and congressmen, etc. So it was, as we say, a country run by their owners <laughs> directly. Yeah. Uh, and today, President Sebastián Piñera is at the same time president, uh, democratically elected, of course, mm-hmm. and the fifth richest person in Chile with a fortune of almost $3 billion. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. of a country run by their owners in some way continues. Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, there's a fascinating statistics that you've, that you've raised there. I think it's interesting as well that you, you mentioned the names of the, the Luxich family, uh, the Edwards as well. Because, I mean, you, you talk to any Chilean in the street and they can name you the kind of 
seven to ten families and they can tell you kind of what uh, or which areas of uh, business they've gone. I mean, the Edwards, I think, are banking. The Luxich have got mining kind of interests as well. Uh, there are more people doing kind of forestry. It's it's an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic that's uh, that's developed. I was wondering as well what um, what role the dictatorship in Chile, which was uh, which began on the with the military coup on the eleventh of September nineteen seventy three, what role that played in consolidating this wealth, or if that if if this is something that, like you say, does go so much further back than that. Yeah, well, that's interesting because uh, the dictatorships uh, create new fortunes. Uh, so it uh, it creates some circulation of the of the elites. Um, if you see now the of the ten richest families in Chile, according to Forbes, mm-hmm. almost all of them are first or second generation billionaires, yeah. um, and most of them become rich precisely using political connections with the Pinochet dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the best example I can tell you is the example of Julio Ponce. Julio Ponce was Pinochet's son-in-law and received the control of lithium as a sort of family gift. Chile is the first producer of lithium in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when democracy arrives, he was very su- successful in protecting his position, giving money very generously to politicians, especially left-wing politicians. Mm-hmm. And in this way, he effectively bought immunity, uh, so he kept the lithium until today. And today, Julio Ponce, the former son-in-law of Pinochet is Chile's second richest person with almost $4 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have some similar stories also of other uh, uh, great businessmen that were also, their fortunes were also created in the dictatorship or with very good political connection in the first years of democracy. There were many opportunities there because many uh, public companies were privatized in uh, in uh, in not a very transparent way, so the ones that had the money and had the political connection to uh, use this opportunity uh, have a, a great advantage to be today in a, the, the, the the richest in Chile. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned already the case of the the Catholic Church in Chile, uh, which is, I mean, it would. It would take a, a whole episode of our podcast to uh, explain what's actually been going on there, but it's in essence there's been a, there's a, a scandal in the church, kind of covered up, uh, covered up accusations of uh, paedophilia and, uh, and, uh, and and various different things that have kind of turned the whole institution on its head. If we look at the Catholic Church worldwide, and certainly in Chile, I think it's exactly the same. It's a kind of a bastion of kind of you know consolidated male uh, sort of dominance of, over society. I mean. Has the Catholic Church really been turned on its head in Chile? And is this an example of how things can be changed? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I will say that we are still monitoring a developing news story. Um, the Pope Francis tried to use Chile as an experiment of very aggressively dismantle the head of the church in a country. Yeah. But I think that the process is highlighting that the power of the Pope is also very restricted. Of course, uh, theoretically, the, the Pope has absolute power, but in the practice of what's happening in, in, in Vatican, that's that's not so so easy. So he goes one very public step further and then two small steps back in every decision he takes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am not very optimistic about it. I think the only way to really reinvigorate the Catholic Church and to clean the mess that they have defending sexual predators mm-hmm. is to give more power to the congregations, 
to the churchgoers. Uh, they were the they were the ones that reveal all these abuses, but they are still powerless in the in the structure of the Catholic Church. So, so we've talked already about kind of strong institutions and transparency in Chile. Uh, are there any kind of benefits to to having a, a, a very small elite with strong institutions? Because I mean, Chile has Carabineros, for example, the police force, and until relatively recently, with some some scandals that have broken in the last kind of two years, was an incredibly well respected institution. Uh, uh, you know, is this a is this a, a benefit to having uh, a small elite? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because we do have a very stable country, at least for Latin American standards, and some levels of integrity. For example, no one tries to bribe a carabinero, a police officer, in the street, mm-hmm. which is other practice in Mexico or Argentina. In Chile, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, why? I think that's maybe because Chile have a functioning state, a very effective state, a very effective government since 19th century with a central authority, and control of their public employees. So corruption is more subtle, I think. Uh, It's not common that companies paid an envelope with money to a minister. But it is very common that politicians and businessmen, uh, quote, help each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, I finance your campaign today, and tomorrow you will help me with some problems that I can have with regulations. And as the elite is so closely related, because Mm -hmm. they are family, or they went to the same private school, or they go to the same country club, uh, they trust each other, and it will work that way. There is a really great quote from Enrique Kraus. He was the chief of cabinet in uh, Patricio Alwin government in Chile. Uh, He said, we are not corrupt. We are friends of our friends. And I think that's a very good uh, summary of how uh, corruption work in Chile, in the, in the elite. Yeah, sure. It's interesting that you mentioned the same private schools and uh, and country clubs. I mean, are these the kind of places where decisions are made in in Chile? I mean, you know, kind of, you know, favors are discussed and money is uh, is kind of put in the right places or in the right industries, as you said before. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, uh, the wealth is passed on the. On the the next generation, with an end of these private schools are very crucial, very important in Chile. Uh, over half of Chilean top executives, exactly 53% of them, uh, studied in only nine elite private schools, all of them located in the northeast part of the capital city, Santiago. Mm-hmm. Uh, these schools represented the 0.5% of Chilean students, but they have 53% of top executive position in the most important companies. That is a a very interesting paper of Seth Zimmerman, a professor of the University of Chicago, that discovered these figures. So uh, if you are uh, not admitted at the age of four years in the right private school, your way to the top will be very, very difficult. Uh, And if you are in this right private school, probably your way to the top will be very smooth. Uh, of course, this situation is the opposite of meritocracy, but uh, it's very relevant to understand how Chilean elite and how Chilean society works to understand that this uh, very small net of private schools uh, is uh, uh, totally crucial to, mm-hmm. uh, to understand who will go to the top of the 
of the uh, uh, most relevant companies and who will not. And talking as well, I mean, you talk about these kind of private schools in the in the northeast of Santiago. Is is one of the problems that just power, wealth, money? I mean, everything is kind of concentrated just in Santiago more generally. I mean, Chile is an incredibly centralized country, and it's very difficult to see how that kind of monopoly is going to be broken. Yeah, totally. That that's that's absolutely a problem because uh, uh, Chile is a is a is a very long country, four thousand kilometer long. And with very different realities, we have like the driest desert of the world in the north, mm-hmm. and we go all the way to the Antarctic in the south. So we have very different realities. But every decision is concentrated in Santiago. Uh, we you can't do anything in Chile uh, without an, out, an authorization that is uh, that depends of a central authority in Santiago. Uh, so every companies are based in Santiago. Every relevant news media are based in Santiago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most important universities, uh, of course, all these elite private schools are all of them in Santiago. Um, so that's that's a problem because uh, it's difficult to to really uh, develop uh, uh, the the rest of the country and uh, develop the, the the power of the rest of the country, even when most of uh, Chile's um, natural resources are very far from Santiago. For example, the copper is in the far north, um, or the the, the, the fishery uh, is also in the north. So we have like ex- we are we are extracting natural resources mm-hmm. in the north and the south of the countries, but all the wealth is concentrated just in the central. Absolutely, yeah. And we talked uh, we talked earlier about uh, accountability, I guess, in, in in terms of strong institutions. Um, I mean, while while we kind of we can glorify uh, some of the institutions in Chile and say that corruption is not really a problem, um, one thing that's come to light is the kind of Carabineros scandal has um, has really started to to kind of envelop the nation. Uh, was this uh, the murder of Camilo Catrianca uh, in November last year? Uh, he was a just for our listeners. He was a, a, a Mapuche uh, civilian who was shot in the back of the head as he drove away from the um, the kind of heavily militarized uh, police down in La Alcania, which is the kind of uh, the Mapuche region um, down in the south of Chile. Um, I mean, does that? I mean, the fact that no kind of heads have really rolled. I think that the head of the Carabineros was was replaced. But the interior minister, Andres Chadwick, who I think is a cousin of the current president, just to illustrate your uh, your point. Um, I mean, he, he kind of rode out the scandal and there wasn't really any kind of accountability, uh, political accountability, certainly, uh, that came yeah. of that. Yeah, well, I, I think that the murder of Camilo Catrillanca shows again how indigenous population in Chile, Mapuche population, has been always been the lowest part of the pyramid and that the military political and economic power has always assumed that they can do anything with them. But I think it's also changing. Catrillanca is not the first Mapuche that is killed, uh, and in which case police uh, officers and politicians cover the crime. We have a number of cases similar. But this is the first time that such a killing became a high-profile national scandal Mm -hmm. and a political crisis. Uh, even if uh, Minister Chadwick uh, finally d- d- uh, didn't resign, but he was in, in, in severe political problems. Mm-hmm. And that's new in Chile. I think it's a new, a new signal uh, that power is not so easy 
to impose now as it was like maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. when uh, other Mapuche leaders were also killed and really nothing happens. Sure. And do you see anything really changing on the back of uh, on the back of this? Do you think that, like you say, the kind of maybe the models changing, civil society is really waking up to uh, to what's happening? But do you see any kind of meaningful change coming from coming from this at all? Yeah, I think there there, there are many things that are changing. Uh, nothing of, of of the things that we are discussing right now are are new. I mean, uh, like this kind of uh, friendship corruption or this kind of of. Uh, 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 favors between the political and economic elite has always been uh, the, the, the way in Chile. Um, but now we know more about it. Mm-hmm. We, we write more about it, people discuss more openly. Uh, the social media, of course, is also helping that these cases are being very... Um, that that, that these this things are, are being discussed in the, in the public opinion in Chile. Uh, and I think that's a first step that is very relevant. Um, and it's also uh, being possible that new laws have been passed in the last years trying to um, give more transparency to the, the action of the public powers in Chile. So I think we are moving forward. Uh, of course, the problem is that the elite is very, uh, is very small, and it acts in a very... I mean, they, they can protect each other because they are so closely related. So this, obviously, uh, is a big problem to, to, to improve in a more transparent and a more democratic society. But I think we are, we are moving forward in the, in the last years. Brilliant. It's a good note to end on. I'm hopeful as well that something can be, can be done about this. So, Daniel Matamana, thank you so much for talking to us. It's very kind. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, so I'm here uh, on Skype with Tomas Ayuso, who's a Honduran writer and documentary uh, photojournalist, uh, whose works featured with National, National Geographic, uh, the Magnum Foundation, Bloomberg, Washington Post, uh, UN, uh, Vice, and many, many others. Um, uh, his work focuses on conflicts in Latin America, including the drug war, forced displacement uh, and urban dispossession. And um, most recently, I've been following Tomás's uh, work, uh, which uh, traces the route of some young Central American families uh, making their way to the, to the US and trying to make their way across across the border. Um, it was really kind of intimate, um, uh, sensitive uh, portrayals um, of those kind of young families and their situation, and, and often accompanied by some really... Um, uh, really powerful sort of texts, uh, 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 chronicles as well, I suppose. Um, Tomas, thanks so much for, for coming coming on the podcast. It's great to have you uh, with us. Um, p- perhaps to start off, you could give us a sense of how you came to be uh, doing photojournalism. Well, what was your what was your route in, in into this kind of work? Well, hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. Um, originally, I was intending a career in diplomacy of sorts, but. The, fortunately, these organisms in, the, in Honduras weren't really um, had much space for Hondurans themselves. It was mostly staffed by people, uh, foreigners, Americans mm. or Europeans. And I felt disillusioned in that fact. Kind of things uh, came undone, undone in that respect. And I thought at the time, this was about 2014, mm. when you recall Honduras was having 
most of Central America really was having the unaccompanied minor crisis at the border, as it was termed in the U.S., with mm. all these children and minors arriving at the border due to the violence, the surge of violence. So I saw the coverage coming from, um, you know, these uh, newspapers or uh, outlets from from the North Atlantic that would cover the subject, but they would cover it in a manner that was very dehumanizing and didn't really capture the nuance of what was happening on the ground. Mm. And at the time, you know, with my academic background, which is uh, in conflict and development and everything, I thought, well, uh, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can provide that perspective that's missing. And so I did, and I started, and eventually started taking the camera with me to try and understand the reason of this mess child's children's exodus that was mm-hmm. happening and uh, that kind of just kept going until now mm-hmm. and and you know I, I should say you know you haven't just covered um you know central america you've also you know been, been all over you went to colombia to brazil uh you've some great uh work there as well um I mean, my, my kind of impressions of of your work i mean i'm not a, a photojournalist myself you know i i I take terrible photos, but my, my, my uh, I'm hoping to get better. Um, but my sense of your work is, 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 is that, you know, you, you, you have these sort of silent pauses, a, a sense of humor and, and intimacy. Um, and when you're dealing with, with, uh, you know, MSA Torese or, or, or these other gangs, it's, it's not perhaps the, the, the really lurid sensationalist stuff you see elsewhere. Often it's quite sort of a bit makeshift, a bit scrappy. You know, you see the the the, the flakes the, of of paint on their guns. You see them, you know, um, in these slightly disarming contexts. Um, uh, and I mentioned, you know, your 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 work chronicling that journey of that young family, Moises and 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 Maya and their young daughter, all the way from from San Pedro Sula to to, to Tijuana. Do you have a kind of guiding philosophy behind your your work? Are, are there other photographers you you identify with that you feel in their in their tradition you know what what sort of are the principles and the and the, and the techniques that you that you adopt i think that the core is is that you reflect the reality that you see and um i know these a lot of these um, gang members or criminals or people who live in on the other side of the law in Central America or in Mexico and Colombia. Anyone, any journalist who's uh, spent time in those spaces, even though these people have committed crimes and done awful things, uh, there, there are these moments in which, you know, they show you the other side of themselves. And you, it's clear to me, at least, that, that, that there isn't such a thing as this dichotomy of good and evil everyone's uh, a different shade of gray and that comes out too with um with with gang members and so on and in speaking to them you come out to find they might have a sense of humor they might have their people after all they might have they have everything that you and i have and everyone else has just they, they pursue a different career and that i want that that realism because that's i think where the the good stuff of of doing this is just to portray everyone and their flaws and then, and then the variety of selves and that I think comes across with um, some of the examples that you mentioned mm. and when it comes to let's say with uh, Moises and his family um, who 
are not, uh, they're, they're fleeing that, the violence rather than having participated in it. They are also to show the other side that, yes, through the dispossession of being displaced and having to be forced from home, mm. in that path, it isn't all this, at least from what I've seen having traveled with a number of families, you, you find that there are moments of levity and kindness and warmth amidst the bleakness of it all. So mm. uh, I guess it, what I'm trying to say is that in these very opaque and horrifying scenarios, there are these moments of, of, of levity that might not seem, that yeah. would be fit in these spaces, but there, there they are. And I make it my work, my focus to show both sides mm. without dehumanizing or at the at, at expense of anyone's dignity, regardless of uh, my, uh, my judgment or anyone's judgment on them. And as for influences, I think that uh, since I, I kind of uh, happened upon photography and then it just uh, grew organically as opposed to, I, I'd be uh, lying if I said, oh, this is, I've always been uh, a photo junkie or whatever. But mm. um, I'd say that I started admiring the work of my contemporaries who were doing similar, similar kind of uh, stories. So I'd say... Uh, the, the work of people who I admired that uh, it would probably be Natalie Kieser's work in Venezuela, mm-hmm. um, James Rodriguez in Guatemala, mm-hmm. uh, working on how the, the closing of the wounds of the Civil War, if in fact they ever really were in the process of closing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cesar Rodriguez in uh, Mexico and his work on the decades after since the drug war in Mexico started and what how that impacts rural communities. I think that all that work sure. that questions and and looks at uh, you know these big issues from another perspective mm. is what interests me because that's I, I do believe that questioning the narrative of of the big media outlets is necessary, especially um, when you're on the ground and you've seen that it, it, it isn't exactly how it's portrayed. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, I think you, you've written previously, you know, before arriving in, in Planeta, the Planeta neighborhood in San Pedro Sula, you assumed the district, and I'm quoting here, was going to be ruled with an iron fist by ruthless criminals. Instead, I found locals living in a tenuous state of calm among, alongside gang enforcers who were their, their neighbors and their sons and, and their cousins. You know, and I think that's a really interesting, um, uh, you know, a shift in perception there, saying, you know, that, that life does kind of go on in, in, in these contexts and we're not dealing with inherently uh, violent or, or, or chaotic societies. We're dealing with places that do have a kind of, um, you know, like anywhere in the world, have 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 sort of things working the way that they, that they are for reasons, often quite uh, deeply rooted historical um, reasons. And, and and on that point, you know, what what other, what other kind of things do you think are perhaps not... So not picked up so much, or maybe not not accurately portrayed by uh, you know larger media outlets when it comes to uh, the reality in in Central America in in particular. Well, I should say that my work particularly relates to Honduras. Mm. Um, 
it, it's this long, which is, you know, it's, it's, it has its start in that rejection of how these outlets, uh, how I saw with the work that produced in 2014, mm. 14, um, demonst- you know, like, and, and try to ask, answer the question as to why these miners were leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, more often than not, I come across uh, the, these, these pieces that would, it, that would, what's the word, that would like criticize the violence and all that, but also in a way almost glorified by using these uh, very sensational and um, sensory uh, mm. just the details, you know, just cascading rivers of blood and all these things, just mm-hmm. horrifying descriptions that just seem like they would fit better in a metal song. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, the, by going into that and seeing that and going into these places and noticing and uh, get, getting the access into going to these neighborhoods, and you notice that it, that, yes, it in, in fact, it is, um, it's a different, it's complex, it's not as simple as, as how it's portrayed. Mm-hmm. And it was that realization that made me consider, I need, Honduras is completely misunderstood. No one's ever written about it in a way that it, it we are having our story told for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just that realization that, Yes, of course there's violence. No one's negate, uh, negating that. But how can you just ignore all the complexity of everything else that causes this world to exist or that violence to exist or allows that violence to exist? Right? Sure. Um, so I decided to make this like ongoing project that was the very first thing that I started. I'm still doing building upon this day. It's getting more refined as it goes along is the right to grow old, which... The, the, the title kind of says it, that in Honduras there is no right to grow old. The, the youth are the ones that are paying in blood for the, the deficiencies, crimes, and incompetence of those in charge. They use that very sarcastically. Sure. Um, so I'd say that there's... Uh, I'll just speak on Honduras. Um, sure. So when I, see, when I see what's happening, uh, that things that are not mentioned is... Uh, I think the number one issue that's just not discussed with the respect and urgency that is needed is how much the, the, the drug war led by the United States and enforced by every government you know, south of the United States and likely the world is, mm. uh, is a big issue, is a big cause for, cause for a lot of these groups to exist and thrive. It isn't chaotic, as you said. You know, these the, the gangs, the Maras, specifically the two, the two organizations, um, MS-13 and uh, 18th Street Gang, mm-hmm. are, um, you know, they they can only exist because there is um, there is that market. Mm-hmm. Now, one deals with it more than the other, but still, it's the fact that cocaine specifically is illicit. And therefore, it only has to go through the hands of illicit actors. It just makes them stronger, and it's only made them stronger in the years um, since that the crackdown really started in Honduras, um, yeah. which then in turn creates these groups to, I'm sorry, the government and the military to participate as well. 
Yes. Yeah. You might know. I'm, you might not know. Or not know the the current president's brother is on the dock for in the, in Manhattan for mm. being one of the main operators of the Sinaloa cartel in Central America. And it's any number of government officials, military, etc., are also have been extradited. So there's that culpability, but at the same time, all you hear from the U.S. is that we're or the the, the country is being uh, just irresponsibly managed, which is also true, since it's corruption that really steals. Corruption is violence directed downward, indirect violence directed downward to to the people in the mm. country that's seventy percent poor. Yeah. So all these big questions aren't asked. It's just it's you you they they kick the blame they kick the bucket of blame down to the gangs because you know they have no lobbying firms or anything they're just evil they're these caricatures kids with guns running around being heinous which of course i'm not defending uh or making uh any like excuses for no. but it's not really you're not really looking for the source yeah yeah i, I think i think that's a really inter- interesting point you know there's a disconnect between talking about those structural political uh you know processes going on and yeah you mentioned the you know sort of corruption allegations surrounding uh surrounding jaw surrounding president hernandez in 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 honduras you know um and and the reality it's almost like you know the the for displacement and migration are seen as completely separate issues to to those other aspects and we might kind of add add climate change as one of those maybe in especially in the context of 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 guatemala um mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I, I kind of i one I, I guess it's kind of worth zooming out and saying that you know we're thinking about the the so-called crisis at, at, at the u.s border we're seeing mm-hmm. we're seeing apprehensions at, the, at an 11 uh year high although kind of still lower than they were let's say you know, 15, 20 years ago in the kind of George Bush era. Um, there, there seems to be this, this sort of debate and, and, and may, maybe you think it's a kind of uh, um, a false kind of opposition. There's a debate in the media about whether or not people uh, come to the US because they are uh, fleeing, because they're refugees, or whether, or whether they're economic migrants. And there seems to be this idea that, that, that you're one or the other. Um, given your experiences, um, you know, in, in your reporting, where do you kind of you know, what are your feelings about that debate? And, and you know, would you would you kind of come down on, on, on one side or, or, or the other there? I think it's hard to come down and say mm. which one is more than the other. Yeah. But uh, you can... The violence in Honduras, at least I'll just stick to Honduras because that's what, what I truly know. Sure. Violence in Honduras isn't just... Uh, uh, caused by gangs again, the, the, the big boogeyman. Mm. It's it's also uh, the police. It's also uh, uh, the military police, which is this new security uh, force. Mm-hmm. It's also indirect violence of uh, extortion of a business that leads to a family being uh, left uh, economically insolvent as their place of business has uh, place of work has been closed. Mm. Um, there's uh, corruption, which I do consider violence, as it strips everyone of uh, housing or education and health, mm. um, and it just keeps cascading. There isn't, I think, yes, then people are, could say, yes, I want to go to school, uh, I want to go make a better life for myself. But if you push them and ask one question beyond that, and say, why are you leaving, why couldn't you find work? 
you you'll find questions oh the gunmen came into my town and started closing up things and so just start hiring up their guys or mm. the business shuttered because the the corner boy started selling drugs and it just killed the place um uh killed uh, just really made the neighborhood unsustainable or and so on and so for all these different examples you know mm. uh, I, i became indebted after my father uh got sick you know these are all examples that i'm thinking of just out of my head that i've heard yeah. that at first glance might not seem like uh caused by violence because they say oh i was under i breaking it for the money but if you ask you push them more you come to find these things mm-hmm. so i think that that level of nuance isn't really appreciated in that uh in the again loosely using debate because i do agree with you that it isn't um which shouldn't be a matter of a question really sure we've, i think we've touched on this a little bit already already about the way in which the media deals with with um you know parts of, of the global south in general and central america in general and and in particular honduras and, and there's a story a few months ago about a month ago actually in, in the new york times focusing on san pedro sula and, and gang violence uh there and and there was a sort of a kind of controversy and there was you know reporting done initially i think in contra corriente by juan martinez Tovison. um and he was saying that people who featured in the story um had their photographs taken their names given uh their vehicles photographed you know relations houses uh and some of whom you know later told contra corriente that you know they hadn't actually given their permission they weren't aware that was going to happen and of course that that kind of had put a price on their head uh the new york times for what it's worth said that you know they insist that consent was given um you know i mean maybe even you know i don't know whether you want to go into the, the details of that particular story but you you, you might do but but how how do you think journalists can can better um you know respect their subjects and and make sure these kind of um you know dangers and don't don't happen well i well i think the the yes the the new york times story is surely problematic but there aren't alone it isn't mm. it's one of many this is it's just that's that's how it is this is a stories like this was the, the stories that made me want to start you know like yeah. for, you know heart, uh, making a call back to the beginning of our conversation and uh after being on the ground in other countries myself and um i think that going in particularly with countries that are not well represented in the media or in the historical cultural canon of uh of things that are easily accessible online mm. um which i do believe that Honduras is one of them mm. uh to not go with the preparation and understanding of the nuances and complexities at the ground level mm. you end up perpetuating an image of the country that isn't real and you just add to that poorly illustrated canon mm. uh or canon that leads to poor illustration of the country poor understanding uh so i i would recommend for journalists who are going to to these countries such as Honduras and um less known regions of other countries like say the the Colombian Pacific where i've spent a lot of time not a lot of work's been done and mm. there's a lot of reference point is to uh kind of build consensus through working with local journalists who know mm. the beat um 
understand no the, the ground I, I'm not against foreigners from going up leaving their their home if they want to tell a story but if you're gonna tell the story you got to tell the story well mm. and not at the expense your story a story will never matter more than a person's life that should go without saying but mm. the what you said happened with was swelled out in that contra corriente article isn't the first time that someone's life has been put in danger by a foreigner typically from the north atlantic coming in to visit yeah and i surely doubt it'll be the last one yeah. so it's there there's there's this I, i i really do believe this that there's some sense some sense that because of the way that honduras has in our history been not really present in Uh, represent being represented by in by journalism or works of fiction or anything really um, there is this tacit sense that you can come to the country and just do whatever mm. um, really who cares you know there's many stories I can think of at the top of my head of people coming in and just taking pictures next thing you know they win tremendously recognized um, awards and they're plastered all over the place they end up being moved in social media with the assumption that that would never make it to Honduras and there would be no consequence when in fact everyone has a cell phone everyone has the internet everyone uh, can easily everything is shareable 100% yeah I think there's some really interesting and, and yeah valid messages there for reporting you know not only in, in Honduras but across Latin America and the global south as well and I think that's it's important yeah, you know I'm sure this is something that, that, that you do as well but to really make sure that that consent and is informed and 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 you know un, and understood because you know I'm thinking about some of my own reporting in 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 Paraguay or Bolivia where you know again the, the, there might not be under, an understanding of where this story is going or, or what it's doing and and I think and maybe a a willingness to or a tendency to to say yes to to you know in my case a, a gringo or with a with a camera or whatever coming coming out of out of you know out of nowhere making these requests you know you don't want to offend the visitor and i think it's important to really make sure that that consent is is, is understood as well um oh yes absolutely especially when uh say a picture is taken and the people don't know in what context it's going to be uh put in right yeah, so they could take you could take a nice picture of or tell them a nice little vignette of this old lady who sells bread down the street. But if in the net, in the, in the con, in, if it's set in this context of uh, gang members and this and that, uh, there's, yes, you get a consent for her story, but did she really give a consent to be a part of this grand story of gangs and death and violence mm. and uh, sexual violence and everything in which her face is uh, in the middle of all that? Does she know that? Should she know that? I think that if she, if these people are in vulnerable situations, which clearly they are, because that's the point of the story, uh, there needs to be transparency. Sure. Since, uh, as was the case in this story, um, when another example that uh, that I'm alluding to, not by name, is that um, there's people see the screenshots, watch the little video, or see the, the story, and they see, oh, the lady is here next to the gang members. There is, you, you're instantly made her life uh, 10 times more difficult, yeah. if not in peril. Yeah.
Um, th- th- thanks, thanks for, for those reflections. And, and, and you know, just finally, because um, we're running out of time, what's what's next for you? You know, what, what are you what are you kind of working on the same projects? This on, ongoing story of kind of forced displacement in, in from Honduras, or are there the new kind of things which are on the horizon? I am going to continue the Right to Grow Old, and um, which is this project that look, uh, answer, tries to understand why people are leaving, what it looks like for people in transit through Mexico, and uh, ask the question of whether it was worth it or not for the people who are being here. Mm. Um, told by Honduran and spoke, and well, with the message being carried from the Hondurans who live these experiences uh, into. I don't know, uh, being published by someone, uh, being written by someone who was under. So uh, that's that's my main goal through the end of the year. Uh, afterwards, there is uh, probably keeping with the same themes because unfortunately, I don't think this is going to end anytime soon. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's it's great that you're that you're covering it in such, in such a um, amazing way, and I look forward to following that work in future. And we will, of course, be linking to your. To your work in the uh, description of the of the show, um, Thomas. I, I also thanks so much for for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Mirales. Uh, Lawrence, what did you think of today's interviews? I enjoyed them. I found them very engrossing. Uh, excellent questions. Um, very seriously, I, I liked uh, the emphasis Marianne made about the, there being a kind of crisis within and outside Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think her emphasis on how Chavismo has to play a role in the future of the country, yeah. I think, was was kind of uh, very interesting. Um, and I, I enjoyed the kind of the deep historical kind of roots of, of Chile's sort of inequality problem, which uh, Danielle uh, talks to you about. Yeah, I think they're both incredibly important issues in their respective countries, aren't they? Um, yeah, and, and the interview with Tomas as well, excellent. Um, really good to hear from somebody who's actually kind of been there and reported on these uh, on these issues. Because we all read about the migrant crisis, but it's nice to hear from somebody who's uh, can really kind of draw the distinctions that we that we need to hear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, that is about all we've got time for this week. Um, please do rate us and subscribe to Miradas on iTunes. Spotify and SoundCloud and share us with your networks as it really helps to get the word out there for a new fledgling baby podcast. Please do, yeah, good reviews only, please. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MiradasPod. Uh, check out our website as well and join our mailing list while you're there at www.miradaspodcast.com and email us with any requests or comments or uh, anything you'd like to say at info at miradaspodcast.com. That's right. Um, our music, which you've been hearing throughout, is by the Chilean band La Motivante. And our logo was designed by the Chilean cartoonist Diego Cumplido. And you can find more information about them uh, on our website. Absolutely. Please listen in next time. We've got a really good episode coming up uh, called Futbolera. It's looking at women's football in Latin America. It's a, it's a great episode. Absolutely, great especially after the World Football Women's World Cup. Um, can't wait to hear it. Uh, until then, uh, bye-bye. Goodbye.